Lives of the Unconscious. A podcast on psychoanalysis and psychotherapy. Episode 25. O parting, fountain of all words. Why progress is grounded in loss. Throughout our lives, we are faced with separation. With the cutting of the umbilical cord, severing us from the corporeal union with our mother, begins a seemingly endless series of losses that we must resolve. From places, from beloved toys, from friendships, from our pets, later parting from home and from our parents, the end of romantic relationships, and eventually, over the course of our lives, the death of our loved ones. Someday we must even come to grips with our own finitude. The necessity of separation, leaving behind chapters in one's lives, people, even parts of one's own identity, is part of life. In this context, the psychoanalyst Paul Ricoeur coined the phrase, The path to reality is lined with lost objects. But also, as we will now hear, the path to progress. For as painful as separation is, it is nevertheless an indispensable requirement for mental life and our own identity. And yes, even for cultural development itself. Separation is, in a sense, the natural counterpart or complement to attachment. We are always somewhere along this tension between attachment and separation and the bulk of all psychological experience, including mental illness, has something to do with this spectrum. A mature ego, that means psychologically developed, is able to move along this spectrum without being fixated on one side or the other. It can form and maintain lasting bonds. That also means accepting forms of dependency, and is, at the same time, able to break free leave things behind and go one's own way, to move on. For every development, every advancement, goes hand in hand with letting go, with the separation from what, until now, we have been used to. Sometimes, behind difficulty in making decisions, lies a fear of separation, namely the difficulty of committing oneself to a course of action and letting go of all others. However, it is a long journey in the development of every human before a mature approach to separation is achieved. In the episode on attachment, we heard that young children experience separation differently than people later in life. For an infant, separation is absolute. The mother who leaves the room disappears for the infant into a complete nothingness. She is gone, with no notion that she still exists and will return, even if she is out of sight. If there is no other important caregiver there, the child will experience catastrophic fears, cry, and immediately start looking for the mother. Only over the course of the child's development will they form a stable inner image of the mother, or the father, and can cope better with separations. This inner image of the other is also called object representation, or inner objects. 
whereby object is a psychoanalytic term for the inner image of an important caregiver, at first usually the mother or father. This inner image of the other is in fact the secret of the psyche. And what an astonishing process. It is possible for us humans to keep another person present inwardly, to represent them, to think about them, perhaps even to meet or to speak with them mentally, although they are not present physically. It is not for nothing that culture begins, as anthropologists tell us, with the tomb, places of remembrance. The psychoanalyst Donald Winnicott, one of the most famous analysts after Freud, describes this remarkable ability with the paradoxical formula, the presence in absence that we can keep the other present inwardly, even when he or she is not there, is the prerequisite for being able to be alone without having catastrophic fears like the baby in our example. So we are never completely alone. Inwardly, the other remains with us. If, on the other hand, problems arise at this stage of development, a person may have great difficulty in keeping the other present inwardly. And they may develop strong fears of separation, for example, if the other person is only away for a short time, or comes home late unexpectedly. Children cannot immediately keep their caregivers psychologically present. For a long time, they will need a real object that stands in for their parents and that replaces their real presence such as a doll or a stuffed animal? Winnicott speaks in this context of transitional objects, something we will deal with some other time. At some point, children have internalized their caregivers to such an extent that they no longer need, or only sometimes need, real objects, dolls, teddy bears, in order to maintain a bond to the other. The bond has in fact been incorporated into the structure of the psyche, has become a part of the psyche. Only now is real separation possible, and the child can now be alone for once, spend time with friends, even later in life, breaking free from the parents entirely, moving away from home, and so on. Only those who have a secure inner image of their caregivers can break away from them. To put it somewhat oversimplified, the better the relationship with the parents is, the easier it is for children to extricate themselves from them, or to transform their relationship to their parents later in life. We have the good parts of our parents in us, which is why we can deal with the real relationship to our parents more flexibly. Whereas, difficult relationships to our parents quite often persist much longer and more intensely, changing very little over the course of a lifetime, even once the child has long since grown up and there are many good reasons to leave the parents behind. It was not possible to establish a secure inner image, and the real presence, the real relationship, is, at least to some extent, still needed. One can also see here that the real separation is bypassed by a kind of psychological trick. In actual fact, we can't bear separation at all. We can only then let go of someone we love externally 
once they have been internalized, i.e., have been made a part of our psyche, where they then effectively abide with us beyond the real loss, which, admittedly, need not only have a nice side, the deceased, or people from whom we become separated in some other way, gain for us an enormous psychological presence, especially when something remains unresolved in this relationship. The lost person then haunts our soul, as it were, is, in some problematic way, psychologically undead to us. The belief in spirits is perhaps nothing more than the manifestation of such inner psychic processes. The process of incorporating a loss, say a deceased person, into the fabric of the psyche, of releasing oneself from real entanglements, and so making peace with it inwardly, one also calls grief. Here, too, in the process of mourning, real objects often still play an important role connecting us with the deceased, much like transitional objects do for children. The analyst Vamik Volken, who has dealt a lot with processes of grieving, calls them linking objects, like the deceased person's watch or other objects that connect us to them, and which we carry with us like shrines, even long after their death. Only at the end of the process of grieving can these objects be given up, put into a new context, or into a separate area, a special room or cupboard reserved especially for remembrance, but that no longer dominates the lives of the bereaved. This is also accompanied by the fact that inner peace has begun. The lost person no longer hunts the soul restlessly, but rather, for example, in the form of memories, has found a peaceful place in the heart. Many mental illnesses, and by no means only in the event of death, have something to do with static grief, in Vulcan's words, frozen grief. It is not for nothing that Sigmund Freud used the terms of mourning and melancholia to grapple with what today we call depression. Static grief also means that the pain of grieving continues to burn in some part of the soul. Here, time cannot heal wounds. The inner separation has failed. Psychologically, time stands still. The psychoanalyst Eberhard Haas, who has dealt with grieving processes in a number of works, illustrates, with the help of the myth of Orpheus and Eurydice, that a successful mourning process always includes an attempt at salvation, the turning back of time, while at the same time it's necessary failure, hence a second inner burial of the lost, which is often only possible much later. But we will hear about this topic another time. However, even in successful processes of mourning, in fact, especially in those cases, does the connection to the deceased survive internally, albeit only in a psychologically integrated form that recognizes the loss? Just letting things disappear into oblivion, those people, or also things, with which we have lived and then lost, is more a sign of unprocessed grief or emotional coldness 
than of a sign of strength in handling separation, which in many ways casts a dubious light on our throwaway culture. The ability to separate from people, places, or stages in life without losing the inner attachment to them is one of the most crucial forces driving not only our lives, but even culture itself. It is no coincidence that children's ability to represent their caregivers internally corresponds to another essential milestone of psychological development, language acquisition. In developmental psychology, the ability to speak and think in language corresponds with the ability to detach oneself from the real presence of the other, that is, with the ability to be alone. Although not exclusively, language is the essential medium for maintaining inner continuity with others. Sigmund Freud explored this characteristic of language, and from him originates the quote, Writing is originally the language of the absent. In writing, but also in speaking, and in linguistic thinking itself, we can relate to people and places that are far away from us, from which we have long since separated, that we may have never even experienced ourselves. For example, when I say, Middle Earth or Hogwarts, although I have never been there, and yet, through these words arise in me images and feelings. In their writings, authors make worlds present to us that may have passed centuries ago. But a little of this power to conjure up, to let things come alive, is already contained in the simple utterance, Mama. Indeed, often one of the child's first words, and even sometimes also one of the last words of the dying, who, in distress, summon the longed-for helping object, the mother. At the end of the process of development is not only the secure acquisition of language, but also the ability to be able to think about the other, the absent, not least about oneself. It may be simply alluded to here that this kind of connection and representation also takes place on other, non-linguistic levels, whereby our sense of smell in particular is invested with great associative power. The ability to think, to represent a state of affairs linguistically, to mull over things in the mind, to let something arise before the mind's eye, what more is implied by the word fantasy? All this is closely interwoven with the capacity to separate. Thought, fantasy, and language come into being only through absence, for otherwise we would have no need for thinking. We would be always and exclusively bound to the here and now, that is, to the real moment, to the stake of the moment. But through thinking we can transcend space and time. Developmental psychology holds that situations of separation are the progenitors of thought, in that we try to fill the gaps, try in thought to approach what is not there. This is why parting is the fountain of all words. Whereas the omnipresence of the other, say through permanent and excessive contact via smartphones or social media, 
reduces the space for thought and fantasy, as contemporary analysts have singled out. But this is a controversial topic, and one for another episode. Of course, there are early forms of thought that do not operate in the medium of language, but rather in sounds, bodily states, or haptic impressions, as well as pictorially associative thought. But here, too, the moment of absence, the bridging of separations, plays a central role. The famous psychoanalyst Wilfred Bion has pointed to this in the sentence, an infant's first thought is no breast. In other words, the frustrating and hopefully only momentary absence of something that is existentially desired. Finally, a short excursion into the role of separation in psychotherapy. Separations play an essential role here as well. In many therapeutic processes, they may even be the essential topic. For every single session means establishing attachment, becoming engaged with something, and at the end of the session, giving up those attachments, taking leave and separating. The end of the session is like a situation of farewell in miniature form, in which something can be repeated and condensed between therapist and analyzant that refers to the analyzant's history and inner world. For example, when the patient is clingy and, unable to finish the session, continues speaking after the end of the hour, until the therapist, perhaps following an irksome impulse, ends the session a bit too harshly. The therapist might then be left with a feeling of guilt for having rejected the patient, unlike in comparable situations with other patients. In other cases, ending the session is extraordinarily easy. In this case, the patient has already separated long before the end of the session, when they hear the church bells ringing outside, or sense that the hour is drawing to a close. Perhaps they have withdrawn their demand for attachment and closeness prematurely, out of fear of separation that they can only experience as a form of rejection. Psychoanalysis is, to a large extent, perhaps a process of catching up on the eternalization of presence and attachment, while at the same time the processing of felt as well as real absence, not to mention the anger that is always bound up with separation and loss. In this sense, a successful psychoanalysis is a kind of learning to think and speak in which psychic land is gained. Here too, like everywhere else in our lives, we encounter separation and attachment, grief, anger, and fear, but also the possibility for development. This podcast is written and produced by Cecile Lutz and Jakob Müller. Translated and read by Solomon Lawrence.